We at Refuge Ministries are so blessed by the success of Refuge Freedom Stories and podcasts. In addition, we focus on youth prison ministry, release kits, and many other diverse outreaches to the needs of our community. As a nonprofit, there are many costs involved, however, and we are asking for your support. Financial gifts can be made via our website at www.refugeministriescanada.com or by calling 519-701-0108. Your giving makes this work possible, and we thank you in advance for your support. God bless you. Welcome to Refuge Freedom Stories. I'm your host, Johnny T. And today my guest is Amanda Blackwood. Amanda is an accomplished artist and author, a public speaker, a podcast host, a trauma recovery mentor, and a survivor of human trafficking. Amanda has spoken on a multitude of stages, international summits, radio programs, and has published over a dozen books. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you for having me on your show today. Yeah, it's awesome for you to be here. First and foremost, my question that's been on my mind is, do you feel like Queen Esther? Queen Esther, for those who don't know the story in the Bible, Esther was a woman who was married to a king, and she heard about a plot to kill her homeland people, the Jews, and someone came to her and said, you need to go and talk to the king, and basically said, for such a time as this, you need to go and tell the king what's happening. Do you feel like Queen Esther, with all of the media stuff going on that's come to the surface now about human trafficking and Hollywood and all that kind of stuff, do you really sense that in your life at this moment? Oh my goodness, yes. In so many ways. it's Sometimes it's overwhelming, but this is the mission that God has put on my heart. This is the reason that I was kept alive through everything that I went through. We have so many misconceived perceptions of what human trafficking looks like because of what's coming out in the media, because of what's being perpetuated and sensationalized. And it's damaging so many survivors of trafficking that don't even realize that this is what they're going through because it doesn't look like what it looks like in the movies. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that. Now, I know there's a new movie out, Sound of Freedom with Jim Caviezel, and there's quite a lot of pushback about that from Hollywood and the media. And it makes you wonder what's going on in those realms. We know the enemy owns this world, right? But we know that anytime darkness comes in, the Lord raises up a standard against it. So I, I can see yourself and Jim being a part of that to bring these topics to light and to show people a hope and a path forward that they can actually escape from it and recover from it. Right. And one of the things that we're still seeing, even with a movie like The Sound of Freedom, is that the aspects of trafficking are so sensationalized and they take such a small margin of what trafficking looks like and make it look like that's what all trafficking looks like. And in its own way, this film is still doing its own damage. But we have to remember that this film, none of the money goes to the fight against trafficking. So this is not a movie about human trafficking. 
This is a movie about Tim Ballard, who started Operation Underground Railroad, that is an organization he's no longer affiliated with, but does still go out and fight human trafficking. So a lot of the pushback doesn't make sense, but some of it does. And having these things be sensationalized, from what I understand, I haven't seen the film myself. It opens with a kidnapping scenario. That takes up about only 15% of all human trafficking cases. Most people that are trafficked by people they know and trust and love already, people with a sense of authority over them, like their family, their parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, boyfriends and girlfriends, not kidnappers. It's very rare that somebody will grab somebody off the streets and kidnap them because somebody who's kidnapped is going to fight for their life. Somebody who is coerced through a family or familiar relationship is going to be far more willing to bend to the person's will that's telling them to go and do these things or trying to force them through threats of violence. It's an unusual world when you start digging and learning more about the misconceptions that we have. And there's also no age limit to human trafficking. Only one quarter of all victims are under the age of 18. And while that is still a huge number, we have to realize that it doesn't just happen to children. The oldest person in recent years here in Colorado to be pulled out of trafficking was actually in her 70s. Wow, that's something. And I would imagine older people, they want to belong. They still want to feel validated. They still want to feel important. Somebody came along later in her life to present that to her as a way to achieve acceptance. And that's very common. And while it is something that can happen for the majority of somebody's life, it's rare in that instance also. The average lifespan of somebody in human trafficking is only seven years. At the end of that seven years, they're usually dead. There's a huge high rate of suicide among victims of human trafficking, but there's also forced drug overdose, murder. They're beaten to death. They drug overdose by accident. They're starved to death. I myself, I'm a a survivor of something called sport torture that could have killed me, and I was very lucky it didn't. For sure. And and of course, when people are disposed of, it's a horrible way to put it, but when people are disposed of, everything that they can tell the authorities goes with them. So they're going to close that loop, right, as best as they can. So knowing that you've come out of that, how did that happen for you? I know that you have a faith in God and you're a Christian believer. Was that always a part of your life, your faith? And was that a component of your trafficking or did your faith come partway through that part of your life and help you find a path out of it? So God was calling out to me pretty early on in my life. With most victims of human trafficking, we're no stranger to early childhood abuse. I grew up being molested by my brother starting when I was about four. My father was physically violent. My mother was emotionally and mentally very abusive. So that was my entire family. When I grew up around all of this, I felt like I had no safe outlet. And when I was about nine years old, I started sneaking out of the house on Sunday mornings. I was a very unusual kid. I was running away to church. I wasn't allowed to go to church, so this was a secret. I had to sneak off to go to church, and I didn't miss a Sunday if I could help it. I loved being there. I felt like this is where I belonged. I sat in the front row every Sunday, and I refused to go to the kids' services. I wanted to be in there with the adult services because I wanted to learn the big words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was so important to me, and the pastor was really amazing. My parents got upset when they found out. I got punished severely because they didn't want me going to a non-denominational Christian church. They said, we're Methodist. We don't want you getting the wrong idea. So they were concerned about what denomination church I was going to rather than making sure I was going to church at all. I didn't stop just because I kept on getting in trouble though until we moved. When we moved, it was a lot harder to find a church. I didn't have one that was within walking or bike riding distance. 
I didn't go again for a long time, but I still had that basis. I had a firm foundation that I had Mm -hmm. learned about for the years that we were living in that particular location. And it was really necessary for me. With everything that I had already been going through, molestation and abuse in my preteen and teen years, by the time I was 18 years old, I was looking for love and acceptance wherever I could get it. And I hadn't gone to church in so long that I had forgotten to look for it where it mattered most. Mm -hmm. I was trafficked three different times in my life. At 18, it was by a boyfriend. At 19, it was by a landlord who offered me room and board until I could get on my feet when really he meant room and board until he could find the highest bidder. And then the last time I was trafficked, I was 31 years old. I'd been living on my own for a number of years. I had not been to church in too many years to count at that point. I had really fallen away from my religious background and that feeling that calling from God. There was still something pulling on. But it was during the darkest hours of being trafficked when I was 31 years old that God really reached out to me and pulled me out of this dark moment and prevented me from having a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm-hmm. I was ready to end my life, and he sent somebody to see me, and that was all it took. So at the absolute darkest moments, I was a smoker at the time. I had grabbed a cigarette, just one, and a little book of matches, and I left my house at my prison that day. I was living in Scotland. He had taken my passport, my debit card, and he was a police officer. So I didn't feel like I could go to the authorities and ask for help. He was the authorities. He had all of my documentation and I was there under his care while I was there on a visa. I felt very trapped. And I decided that this one last cigarette was going to be my last cigarette ever because I wasn't going to be returning that day. I was going to end my life. And I walked down the the main street till I got to an old church that had been built in the 1600s. And there was a really cool little, very old graveyard right there, right next to the church. And one of the headstones had the year 1776 on it. Everything else on the headstone had been so weather-worn, you couldn't read it. You could see where the name had been. You had no idea what the name was. Mm -hmm. But 1776 is the year that America claimed independence from England. And I took that as a sign. That's what I was looking to do. And I sat Mm -hmm. down and I talked to whoever it was that was under that headstone. I sat there for the longest time and I kept on praying and saying, please send somebody to just see me and ask me if I'm okay. And nobody came. Eventually I got up and I went over to the church, such an old church, and I tried the door handle and the door, of course, was locked. And I sat down on the front porch on the front steps and I watched people walking by and I watched people driving by. And I kept on thinking and praying to myself, please send somebody to just see me. Because if somebody asks me what's wrong, I can tell them. Maybe they can help me. Maybe they can get me out of this. And nobody stopped. They'd look at me. They'd glance at me. They could tell I was crying. They could see I was upset. But they had this mentality of they didn't want to get involved. Whatever, it wasn't their problem. They didn't want to make it their problem. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. No. So eventually I got up again. I guess I'd been sitting on the steps there for about an hour. And I made my way to the train station. And the plan was to sit at the train station, smoke my last cigarette, wait for about the time that the train would start arriving, and then get up and wander toward the train down the tracks and commit suicide by train. And while I was sitting there smoking my cigarette, a man walked out onto the platform and he asked me for a light and I gave him my matches. And I handed them to him very purposefully and said, you can keep them. I won't need them anymore. And the reason I said it like that was because I wanted him to ask me why. Mm -hmm. And when he didn't ask, I knew that I couldn't make this man care. I knew that he was going to say, just like everybody else, mentally, it's not my problem. I'm not going to get involved. And instead of saying anything like that, he just said, I won't need them either and handed them back. And that was the end of that conversation. (laughs) But then this little guy, probably about four years old, 
came out onto the train platform and he took this man's hand. And this little boy looked at me. And he didn't just look at me the way a little four-year-old child would look at a total stranger. He looked at me like he knew me. He saw me. And I could see this child and I could see the part of me, a part of who I was and what I had lost, I saw in this child reflected in his eyes. And I knew that I couldn't do to this child what had been done to me when I was only about four years old. I could not take his innocence away from him. I could not do what I had planned to do that day. Mm -hmm. And I jumped up and I started running. And rather than running toward the train, I found myself running back toward my prison. And I found myself very loudly thanking God for this miracle that I knew that was going to come, that I was going to survive. I was going to get out of this. And I wasn't going to just die as some nameless, faceless person in, in a foreign country, suicide by trade. He was going to pull me out of this. And he told me this with nothing more than the look in a child's eyes. It was incredible. I knew that I was going to have a greater purpose in this world. And he has not stopped talking to me since then. Yeah. Yeah. It's a teary-eyed moment. <laughs> it certainly is. There's times when we walk down the streets and we pass people every day or we see them in cars or in the mall or whatever. And you have no idea what's going on in somebody's life. And, and I agree 100% with you. As believers, the onus on us is to share the love of God with people and to be bold about it. Like this life is such a short moment in time and we really don't want to be standing on the gates of heaven and have a whole line of people saying, but you never said anything to me, right? I don't want to be that guy. I want to be someone who's walking enough with God to recognize his prompting in my heart that I need to go and do something or say something to someone. And even if it's just, hello, how are you doing? But really mean it, not just, oh, hey, how's it going? Like, it, it's so important. I, I can't agree with you more. And God bless that moment. God bless the timing, the recognition that God put in your heart to help you see that was his hand moving on your behalf. He heard your prayers. And people go through a lot of dark things in their lives. We all have. And we've cried out to God so many times. And there's times where we seem like he's not listening or it's taking too long to answer for what we're going through and things like that. But that just shows God's timing is perfect. Absolutely perfect. We had to allow you to get to that place where you were so determined to end your life that he would bring that spark of life just to touch your heart and turn your life around. That's just incredible. That really is. They were not the eyes of an average four-year-old person. For sure. So how did that first step lead to your path forward and your break from this world? Because of everything that I had been through, starting at a very early age, what a lot of people didn't know about me was that I was more intelligent than I allowed people to realize. I had been privately studying psychology for many years, and I knew enough about certain things like Stockholm Syndrome, what we now call trauma bonding. And I knew enough about it to start leaving a breadcrumb trail and making this man believe that I would do anything for him and that I valued him and worshipped him. He was, by the way, an atheist, so I had zero ability to go to church while I was there or have anything openly said about being a believer. He tried to abuse that and torture that out of me, and I wouldn't allow it to happen. But I kept on every day, God, please help me to have the strength to get through this. Help me to drop more breadcrumbs. Help me to do what I know needs to be done. 
And some of it was deceptive. A lot of it was deceptive. For a long time, I struggled with this and told myself that what I was doing was wrong because you're not supposed to tell lies, but that's exactly what I was doing. And when I managed to get all the way out, I had been there 152 days. This was June of 2011. I had originally gotten there in January 2011. And I told this man that my visa was about to run out and that if I overstayed my visa, that I could get kicked out of the country permanently according to UK law and he could lose his job as a police officer if anybody found out but that if he sent me back to the U.S., I could stay with friends for six months and then return on a new visa six months later. And I knew that I had worked really hard to drop the breadcrumbs to truly make him believe that I would do anything for him and that I was Mm -hmm. completely and madly in love with him. But I hoped it was enough. And I was really terrified in that moment that it wasn't enough and that he was going to end my life or not fall for this trick. And instead, within two hours... I had a round trip flight to leave Scotland and I got back and I ran for my life. I did everything I could. And just because you get away from trauma doesn't mean that it ends there. He was hunting me. He did come look for me, found him banging on the neighbor's door one day. He had my address off by a single number and he did attack me virtually for a long time and it completely broke me. I reached out to an anti-trafficking organization out here who paired me up with a Christian counselor who was absolutely incredible. This woman helped me to get through a lot of the, the darkest moments. During this time after I had gotten away from Scotland, I did finally find a really good church and it felt like home again. That feeling that I hadn't known since I was that kid running away and sitting on the front row. I was a part of this church. I was doing something to be a part of it and to help. And I always felt like just going to the services and leaving wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. It wasn't truly getting involved. I wasn't actually doing my part. I was just sitting in a building and listening to somebody speak. I needed more than that. And now I'm married to an audio engineer of a different (laughs) church, (laughs) but it is still home. And it's incredible to have that feeling and to know that, God, this whole time, God was calling me and telling me this is where you belong. 43 times in my life, trying to get away from bad people for the most part. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what home felt like. It's funny how we can come to a place and just walking in that freedom that God gives us feels like home. And the things that we've been through in life there's a phrase, in every testimony, there's a test. And, and God knew our lives before he even created us. He knew everything that was going to happen, the good, the bad, the ugly, right? All along the way, he knew the point that we were going to give our hearts to him. He knew the struggles we were going to have. He knew the things preceding that. He knows the day we're going to die, all those things. And when I think about that, and I think, okay, Lord, all of these things, how can we use those to point people towards you? How can we use those things to encourage people that no matter the depth that they've ended up in, whether self-inflicted or or pressed upon them, whatever it might be, that there's hope, that there's a path out, that there's a God who loves them unconditionally. We're never going to surprise them with anything we say to him or say, oh, God, did you know I did? Yeah, actually, I did. Oh, did you see that? Yeah, actually, I saw that too, right? (laughs) We're not going to surprise them. It's so important that people understand, and I'm so thankful that you're in a place where God can use you to help people along that journey. You talk about your psychological training or leaving breadcrumbs and stuff like that. So for the people that are listening right now who may be in that situation, what could you offer them as maybe a path or or some points to hold on to to help them break free from that? What would be some practical, not tips, but things that you could point them towards? 
one of the first things is to recognize that if you don't know what resources are available to you, it's the same thing as not having resources. So take the time. If you're listening to a podcast, you've got some kind of technology available to you. Hopefully you've got a phone or a computer. Look up anti-trafficking organizations in your area. I recently did a research study on my own and found that there's several in at least every single state here in the U.S. They are all over the world. And the reason that these organizations exist is because they want to help. It's important to find the ones that are actually willing and capable of doing the help rather than those that are just raising awareness and knowing the difference between them. If you have a hard time finding one, reach out to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. If what you're going through is human trafficking, reach out to domestic violence because there's a lot of things that mirror. It's so important to have these resources. And it's not a weakness to ask for help. It is a strength to ask for help when you need it. Another thing that I want to say is it's really important to bust this myth also. We have grown up our entire lives hearing the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it mm-hmm. is a lie. The man who coined the aphorism, his name was Frederick Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. And he came up with this phrase in the 1800s, not too long before he died in an insane asylum. I think we can let that one go. Yeah. It is not our abusers. It is not the past. It is not our pain that makes us stronger. Those people, those places, those things do not deserve that credit. God deserves the credit for making us stronger. He put this in us. He put this strength in us. Sometimes we have to grab out a shovel and dig a little deeper to find it, but it's in there. Hang on. Ask for the help you need and recognize that you are a child of God and you have that strength that God gave you. Amen. So if people want to reach out to you and talk a little bit about your books that you've written, what would be the first one that you would suggest people pick up to read? If people are interested in learning more about me and my life story, my book is called Custom Justice. It's my autobiography. That one was published on my 10-year anniversary of freedom from human trafficking. So that came out in June of 2021. My most recent is actually a cookbook called Surviving in the Kitchen, Recipes for Life, Love, and a Full Stomach. (laughs) But if somebody's looking for something that's maybe going to help them with the beginning of trying to deal with their own traumas. I do have a workbook series that I'm currently working on. The first book is available. It is about the stages of trauma, so you can identify where you are in your healing process. The next book is going to be out later this year, and it's about the trauma reactions that we have. There's long-term consequences to not dealing with them, but it's also going to break down what the healthy different ways are that we can start to cope with them and fight back against those so that we can start to retrain our brains and have a better life. That is called Growth from Darkness, which is also the name of my website, growthfromdarkness.com. People can reach out to me through the website. It's got all of my social media information on there. And I'm extremely active on Facebook, probably more than I should be. And I probably write more than two or three books a year if I stayed off of Facebook a little bit more. That's awesome. God's allowing you to use the talents he's given you for sure. So I know a lot of parents are concerned about trafficking and it seems like it's everywhere. So what tips would you give parents to keep an eye on their kids or to protect their kids from falling into that? We have become a digital age and we need to reverse the clock on this. One of the biggest ways that people are grooming children and getting them into trafficking is through social media, through online avenues, through children's games that are geared towards five, six, seven-year-old children. We need to stop this. The best way to do this is to get more involved in the kids' lives spend time with them, have daily exercises that you do with your children, whether that's going outside and playing baseball or kicking a ball around or doing art projects. It doesn't matter what the thing is. Get involved and do stuff with 
your children is going to have more opportunities to open up and talk to you about things. And if something wonky comes up that they need to talk to you about, these are the moments they're going to be more inclined to do it. And they're going to grow up knowing that they have this important time. They're going to feel important to you. If they feel more important to you, they're going to stop looking for that love and acceptance from somebody else. Very true. And what would be some indicators, if I can use that word, that your child may be feeling some pressure that's unwanted? You're going to start to notice personality changes. And I'm not talking about a preteen becoming a moody preteen because that's a normal thing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking more about kids that have these hobbies that they love doing and they're suddenly pulling away. They're severing friendships. They're no longer participating in their hobbies. They're becoming more and more reclusive. They seem to be getting more depressed. These are all signs of really bad things happening. It could be trafficking. It could be an abusive relationship at school. It could be depression. It could be anxiety. These are things that need to be addressed and you got to spend time with your kids to really figure out what it is. So let me ask you one final question. If you're going to tell people one thing about God, what would that be? God is the one place that we should turn to. He is the one being that we should turn to when we're having a hard time with our own acceptance, with wanting love, with needing love, with trying to recover from traumas, with trying to cope with things that have happened in our past. He doesn't care about the past as long as we turn to him for our future. Give it to God and God will take care of you. He will love you and he will never let you down. Amen, 100%. Thank you so much, Amanda, for being on the show. It's been an eye-opening and very, very encouraging discussion to hear about what God can do and to help people with in their lives. So thanks so much for being here. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much. For anyone who's doubting Backs against the wall You've prayed a thousand prayers You don't think he's heard at all The pressure's unrelenting Time is running out on you There's good news There's good news For anyone who's hurting Wants to run and hide Questions and regrets Eat you up inside You try to escape it But it's a mess you can't undo There's good news There's good news
if you're breathing, he's not through. There's good news. Oh, there's good news. Even through the valley of the shadow. I hope that you have enjoyed the last half hour as much as I did. Thank you again to Refuge Ministries Canada for hosting the show. So until next Friday, may God richly bless you with peace, love, and happiness. We at Refuge Ministries are so blessed by the success of Refuge Freedom Stories and podcasts. In addition, we focus on youth prison ministry, release kits, and many other diverse outreaches to the needs of our community. As a nonprofit, there are many costs involved, however, and we are asking for your support. Financial gifts can be made via our website at www.refugeministriescanada.com or by calling 519-701-0108. Your giving makes this work possible, and we thank you in advance for your support. That's 519-701-0108. God bless you.